Welcome to the Coaching at Henley podcast from Henley Business School. This podcast is for anyone interested in exploring the question, why coaching? Here, you'll be joining us in our conversations as we aim to spark provocative thinking, research and practice in the discipline of coaching. In the Coaching at Henley podcast, we share our thoughts, experiences and views on a vast range of topics linked to coaching and behaviour change. Each episode is split into segments where we either explore a piece of coaching-related research and the implications for practice, debate a hot topic in coaching, answer listener questions, or learn from a guest speaker. Hi, I'm Rebecca Jones, an Associate Professor in Coaching and Behaviour Change at Henley Business School, and welcome to the Coaching at Henley podcast. Today, I'm joined by my colleagues, Abudi Sharbi, a lecturer in coaching. Hi, Abudi. Hello. Hi. And also, Sarah Leach, also a lecturer in coaching. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. (laughs) So, in this episode, we've got three segments for you. And first of all, we're going to have Coaching at Henley Discusses. That's followed by our spotlight on research. And then finally, we'll have You Ask Us, which is where we answer listener questions. So in this part of the podcast, we'll be taking a look at a question and exploring it from different perspectives. And today's question that we're going to take a look at is quite a broad one. Can anybody be coached? And I wonder, Sarah and Rebecca, what are your thoughts about that? Well, overall, I think in theory, yes, but in practice, probably no. (laughs) I think to start off with, there's something for me around a client's readiness to be coached. So, you know, do they want to be there to, and and do they really want to work on themselves? And, And if that's not the case for whatever reason, then maybe you know, let's try it another time. (laughs) Or maybe the intervention isn't the right thing for them. And maybe they, they have a learning style that is, is different to what coaching kind of enables really. Thanks, Sarah. I think for me, this is a really interesting topic because on the one hand, I think there's a lot about our philosophy as coaches, which says that, yes, of course, everybody could be coached. I mean, surely that's the underlying principle of like a growth mindset, isn't it? We're all able to change and develop and grow. And therefore, if you apply that, then presumably everybody can be coached. But I think I tend to agree with you, Sarah, that I I'm not sure that that is really the case. And in fact, a lot of my own research has really focused on individual differences in coaching and from the coachee perspective. So who benefits the most from coaching? And if you take that on a step, if we assume that some people benefit more from others, then it's not too big a leap to assume that perhaps some people don't benefit at all. So I think I would tend to agree that I think there are some characteristics that mean that perhaps not everybody can be coached. But yeah, that doesn't sit very comfortably with me. On the other hand, even though I know the research says one thing, I do really believe in a growth mindset. So there's something about that that feels a bit strange, if that makes sense. And Abudi, what do you think about this? I think I remember from a long time ago discussions in the coaching forums and blogs that I used to participate in, this whole question of whether someone is coachable or not. And I have to say, a bit like you, you, Rebecca, the discomfort of that, because it's sort of putting people in the category of not being coachable. And I thought it was a helpful refinement to think, 
can this person be coached by me at this time? Because I might not be able to coach someone, but that doesn't mean that someone else couldn't. And I think I just wanted to pick up also on what you said, Sarah, about, you know, often or most of the time we have coaches that want to be coached, but occasionally we don't. We get a coachee who's forced into coaching by their managers and told if you don't get coaching, you know, it's kind of the end. So they're reluctant customers. And I think part of what makes them coachable is the skill of a coach in being able to work with that resistance and discomfort in the coachee rather than writing them off as uncoachable, acknowledging that they might not want to be there. I love that point, Abidji, you make about am I the right coach for you? And I think that's that's really important. And I think that's in terms of, am I the right person to be able to help you, I guess, technically with your issue? You know, is this the right thing for me to be doing? But also there's something for me that underlies all of that, which is about the basic relationship between coach and coachee and whether there's enough trust there for it actually to to work effectively. And I think, you know, there's been some research to suggest that building trust quickly in the first couple of sessions is really paramount to the effectiveness of of the the coaching and therefore ultimately the outcomes of the coaching intervention. So I think that's really important. So in that sense, is everybody coachable? Well, maybe if the relationship's right. And that's making me think about another potentially controversial point that I don't hear being talked about very often, but it's it to do with that relationship and how you connect with that other person. And again, as coaches, there's this assumption that we all have this non-judgmental, unconditional positive regard. But what happens if you just don't gel with your client or there's something about them that take it a step further that you really don't like? And I think Perhaps to deny that that happens is, is denying the human experience. You know, coaches are people too. And no matter how hard we try, there might just be someone that is you're faced with that you just really don't gel with. And therefore, you find it very difficult to build that relationship and potentially support them. So coming back to Abudi's point, perhaps you're not the right coach for them right now. And that's something that I've I'm quite interested in this idea of what happens when we don't like clients. Can we still coach them? Yeah, I don't know what my views are on that, but I think it's an interesting thing to think about. The other angle that kind of pops up in my head is is around, I, I notice with some of my clients that it takes a little while for them to settle in. You've almost got to train them to be a client and to be ready to be coached in that sense. And once they truly understand the process and, and then engage with that positively, then then yes, I think most people can be coached. But it's that you know, when you you try something new and you kind of stumble and fall and don't like it, and then you you know you get stuck along the way. There's that element of the coaching relationship up front, which I think hinders perhaps the clear answer to this question about whether anybody can be coached or not, because we all got to stumble and fall when we when we try new things, don't we? Often, and coaching is perhaps very new to all of our clients, and maybe. Maybe there's an element of training <laughs> to be had about how to be a good client and how to be a good coach, obviously, in, in that partnership. Yeah, and maybe there's also something about 
you know, training to be good in relationship. You know, I can think of a few personal relationships that I didn't immediately gel with the person and maybe even didn't like them very much. And they since become quite good friends of mine. So I think there is something about, you know, us adjusting to each other as being part of that. And I, and I also just had a thought about what you said about, you know, not liking or not gelling with a client. Because I think I have certainly coached people that I haven't liked and done a good job. But I also think the flip might be true, that there are clients that I have liked and I haven't done such a good job. And sometimes liking someone can be a barrier to coaching because I might end up seeing things too closely to the way the coachee does or having too much in common for coaching to happen. So I think it it's a bit of a, you know, there are two sides to that point, I think. I've definitely had that experience where I felt a strong, a really strong connection with a client. And I, if I really step back and reflect on it, I think I probably was colluding with them quite a lot and overstepping the boundary between having a nice cozy chat with a friend because I really connected with them and probably could see a lot of myself in them. And and I think that is a challenge when you feel a very strong connection to keep that professional boundary as coach firmly there and especially if you work with someone over a very long period of time you really get to know them and become invested in them as well and I guess that's one of the challenges we always have with coaches and coming back to my earlier point I I was just thinking again about when perhaps we don't gel with a client and clients that aren't particularly ready for coaching I do wonder how many of those then kind of opt out of coaching I I mean I've certainly had experiences where I might have a couple of sessions and then things finish perhaps prematurely and I do wonder whether the client just obviously they they might not have felt my coaching was very effective or they might not have felt that coaching was there for them or that it wasn't they weren't particularly ready it could be any number of things and that's often the challenge when a coaching intervention finishes early is we don't always get accurate feedback as to why it was and I know that's something I've personally grappled with is trying not to take that too personally and think that it oh it must have been something I did and try to perhaps be a bit more objective or impartial about it that it's just one of those things perhaps I wasn't the right fit for them but equally perhaps coaching with me at that time wasn't the right thing for them. This is a really rich discussion, and unfortunately, we're out of time, but we would love to hear your thoughts. So if you've got any questions or thoughts that come to you from this conversation, please do let us know. So in the next part of the podcast, we've got our spotlight on research. So this is where we take a piece of coaching research and we have a look at it in detail and and we discuss some of the questions that might come up for us about the research. So in this episode, we're looking at a research article on acceptance and commitment coaching to quit smoking by Bricker et al. And this article was published this year in 2022. We'll put the full details of the article in the episode show notes for those of you that would like to have a look at it. So just to give a quick summary, the purpose of the research was to compare the relative effectiveness of standard telephone delivered coaching, which is called Quitline, and this encourages problem solving skills to control urges to smoke and promotes reason-driven behaviour change. So 
things like looking at the list of all the reasons for quitting smoking, and it compared it to acceptance and commitment therapy telephone-delivered coaching, which focuses on the participants' relationships with their thoughts, promotes value-driven behavior change, and gets them thinking about what's really important to them deep down. So what the authors did in this study was they randomly assigned participants to either the standard quit line condition or the acceptance and commitment coaching condition. And participants completed surveys at three, six and 12 months after the start of the study. In terms of the intervention, both the acceptance and commitment coaching and quit line intervention were delivered as five session coaching interventions in combination with nicotine replacement therapy. In the study, the coaching calls were were really brief. So the first call lasted just 20 minutes and then subsequent calls were 10 to 15 minutes each and calls were offered up to 90 days after the start of the study. Now, this study had a a really large sample, so a total of 1,170 individuals participated. 584 of those were in the quitline group and 586 were in the acceptance and commitment coaching group. In terms of what they found, they found that participants in the acceptance and commitment group were more satisfied and more engaged but they had quit rates, so they were able to quit smoking at a similar rate to the quit line group. So what does this mean for coaches? Well, the results indicate that while there might be an increase in the level of satisfaction and engagement with acceptance and commitment coaching compared to quit line, there's no real difference to the actual impacts on outcomes. So in this case, whether people could stop smoking or not. And given that engagement and satisfaction with coaching is generally not an issue, this evidence suggests that it's unlikely to make much of a difference which type of coaching approach is used. And this evidence supports other findings from the field of psychotherapy that suggests that it's less about the specific elements of certain approaches and much more about common factors that are relevant across all coaching approaches or psychotherapy approaches that make a difference. So although this is quite a niche topic in terms of it's about quitting smoking, there are some interesting findings there that might be generalizable to other more business contexts for coaching. So I'd be interested to hear, Sarah, what do you think about these findings of this study? Interesting. I think, as you say, it supports kind of the research we've already seen about from psychotherapy around um, the use of tools and techniques. I suppose I was interested that both approaches involve some kind of teaching of the client to do something. And And I know that in our workshops here at Henley, we often have conversations with our students about whether we're teaching our clients to do something or coaching them and where's the boundary between the two. So that that was kind of interesting for me. And I also had another thought around this context of smoking, sorry, and whether, you know, if you were to take smoking out and put another thing, another habit in that we have, whether the results would be any different. There's something about smoking, which is kind of quite physiological and biological in the, in the nature of, of the habit. And I wondered if, you know, whether you kind of replaced it with picking up my mobile phone and checking my social media <laughs> habit every five seconds, whether it would be, the results would be, would be different. I don't know. So the sort of medical element, I guess, is, is interesting in there for me. And 
I think that what I didn't really understand as a result of this article was whether the if there's any significance to the fact that they both control groups still had nicotine replacement therapy and whether that in itself alters the ability of the tool to have a greater or lesser impact. And so, and that wasn't clear for me in the findings, but overall, I think it kind of corroborates what we already know, doesn't it, about the use of tools and techniques. Yeah, I think those are some really good points. And and this is one of the challenges when we take a piece of research that's in one context and we try to apply the findings to other contexts. And there are definitely some limitations that we need to be wary of or at least cautious when we're translating. And I think the ones that you've mentioned are all relevant. And I would add to that the fact that the coaching intervention was so short I wonder how much, if we were to see one of these coaching interventions, how much that would compare to what we might describe as coaching. But saying that, you know, coaching is one of those approaches that there is going to be lots of variability anyway, even across contexts, just with the different people that are coaches are do apply a very unique approach. So I guess that that kind of variability you're never going to lose that anyway even if it was an hour-long session and the context was perhaps something not smoking but something more business related say or as you say a different type of habit just picking up on the point about coaching approaches Abudi what's your thoughts on this idea that all there's not really any difference in different approaches or tools or techniques have you got any thoughts on that? Oh, loads, I think. I mean, I suppose partly I say that because it's quite a big question. And I, you know, I think with this particular piece of research, it's very specific to, as Sarah says, a physiological habit where there's more going on than just, you know, my inability to stop smoking it or look at social media. It's a physical craving that might have developed. And I think, as you said, Rebecca, it's a very short type of intervention. So it's hard to extrapolate from that in terms of the thing around approach, because there might be those factors might be impacting it. But I do think that, you know, when we teach coaching approaches at Henley, we always talk about using them with regard to the relationship being the most important thing in coaching. And that's something we were speaking about in the previous section of this particular podcast. So I think that there is a really big question of do co different coaching approaches really make that much difference? And the research suggests that they don't, but it then begs the question, which is, why do we spend so much time learning about different approaches when if we're going to be outspoken and say the coaching interventions don't make any difference, why are we investing so much time in teaching them? So I think it raises a lot of big questions. So I think that's a great question, Abudi, and I'm going to turn it back on you, you both, you and Sarah, and say, if it doesn't make that much difference... Why do we teach them? Why do we teach so many tools and techniques? Why is the coaching profession as a whole obsessed with tools, techniques, approaches, if all it boils down to really is the relationship? Well, I mean, I think having tools and techniques in your toolkit <laughs> is useful because 
I guess, depending on the individual sat in front of you, um, you've got some flexibility over how you kind of transform their thinking or enable them to think differently about the the challenge they've got in front of you. And, And when acceptance and commitment therapy might be suitable for one individual or one type of issue, you know, cognitive behavioral coaching might be suitable for another. And I think there's something about using different tools and techniques to be more creative in your coaching enables a different way of thinking for different coaches. So that's useful. But at the same time, it's not the be all and end all. And and it we know that it doesn't necessarily mean that you will always come to a better conclusion or a better outcome just because you've used a specific tool or technique so that's the dichotomy of coaching the gray of coaching which is why I kind of love this topic (laughs) I think for me that it would be something along the lines of you know we like to have a sense of the steps that we're going to take we like to have instructions we like to put things into boxes or have a theory to explain things I think that's a human uh, quality. So I think that's a big part of it. I do agree with Sarah. It's useful to have, you know, more tools in our toolbox. And partly, I think there's something in that paper that was said that there was a rise in engagement and satisfaction. So it might be that the tool itself doesn't produce a different outcome and that all tools could produce a similar outcome. But it might be that one particular intervention or approach produces more engagement on the part of the coachee. And I think that's really worth thinking about because, you know, I'm not a big fan of tools. I mean, obviously, we teach them at Henley and I pay respect to them. But I do think that where they may have value is in the coachee feeling that this is really applicable to them and works well for them. Yes, yeah. I'm noticing that we're running out of time here, but it's such an interesting topic. And I do like being a bit provocative. I mean, I have to say, I personally, I like tools and techniques. So I suppose I do, even though the research, even though I'm a researcher and I, you know, I'm all about the research and what the evidence says, there's something about having a tool and being able to work through it that gives you some sort of confidence or comfort as a coach, especially when you're faced with someone and you don't know what's going to happen. It gives you a little bit of certainty in an uncertain situation, I guess. And I suppose that's my perspective, but it's really, really interesting to discuss with you both. And thank you for sharing your views on this piece of research. And as I said at the beginning, we'll share a link to the research in our podcast episode notes. So the next section in our podcast today is You Ask Us. So we've asked our listeners to send in their questions and we've picked a few that we'll be answering during this and future episodes of the podcast. So in this episode, we're going to think about a great question we've been asked and Actually, I think it reads like a great essay title, to be perfectly honest. And the question is, or the statement, should I say, is, isn't using intuition being judgmental? So discuss. What do you think about that? I'm going to default to Abudi. What do you think first? This is a tricky one. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I suppose... I mean, you mentioned being provocative earlier, Rebecca. I mean, one of the things for me that is quite provocative is I don't think we can be non-judgmental. 
I just don't think that's possible for us as human beings. And, you know, we talk about unconditional positive regard and not being judgmental as coaches. But I think that's an aspiration that we can't actually live up to fully. And so for me, even if intuition comes from a place of making some kind of judgment, consciously or unconsciously, that doesn't necessarily make it problematic. I think the for me, that the, the whole thing lies in what we do with intuition or judgments. If we hold them like an offer and we're not attached to being them right, then I think it's completely legitimate and helpful to share those with our coaches, as long as we're doing it very much in the spirit of, I'm offering you this, that I notice or sense when you're talking about that, rather than this is how it is. And, you know, the, the coaching core companies talk about offering suggestions, intuitions, etc., without attachment to being them right. And I think for me, that is the key pit to navigating this question. When I think, I mean, I personally don't really use the word intuition when I talk about coaching. And I think it's probably because of this, the, the statement that this listener has shared with us. It does feel a bit judgmental for me, but I also agree with Abudi's point and it's got me thinking actually because I do talk about being non-judgmental a lot in in my book I talk about it as one of the core components of effective coaches are it's aspiring to have this non-judgmental attitude however I do agree that it's probably an aspiration that we can never really achieve because humans are inherently biased and therefore we we judgments exist and they exist to keep us safe and it's just sometimes we're not very good at knowing when we can ignore those judgments and be more open and perhaps when we need to pay attention to them. I think for me, the key here is about self-awareness. And and I supervised a PhD student who was really interested in the role of self-awareness in coaching, Julia Carden, who's one of our tutors at, at Henley. And her research was fascinating and it really raised my own awareness of the topic of self-awareness because it's something we talk about all the time but I hadn't paid as much attention to it as perhaps I should have as someone who's interested in in this topic and who is involved in educating coaches. And I think for me, the self-awareness helps tell us perhaps when our intuition or our interventions that we offer a client are perhaps judgmental or they are in service of the client. Because if we're really as self-aware as we can be, and, and that's obviously something that's always developing, we might have an understanding of when something that we're offering is more to do with us than the client. And and I so I think there's something in that for me around this this idea of intuition and judgment. And so I think self-awareness is really important with this. But Sarah, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of agree with all that's been said. And I was thinking, how do I use intuition in, in my practice? And I've always considered it to be different to being judgmental. However, now I've reflected on this question, I'm, I'm not entirely sure <laughs> that that is the case. But intuition is a trigger for me for enabling my curiosity. So it helps me to find the next question or to hone in on the tone of the voice or the choice of the words that the client is using as a possible avenue for further exploration. Or, or intuition 
helps me to tap into my body using all my senses that we talk about when we talk about generative listening, you know, using all my senses available to me to explore what's really underneath for the client and their presenting issue. I don't assume that my intuition is always right. And I often find myself checking in with the client to assess whether or not my intuition's guiding me in the right direction. And I think that's, for me, where the boundary lies between intuition and judgment is if I just assumed that my intuition was bang on, you know, it was right the whole time, then maybe that would infer, therefore, that I was being judgmental. But I I would make sure that there's that check-in point and an assessment with the with the client to say, am, am I reading this right? Is this what I'm feeling? Are you feeling it too? How does it feel? You know, should we do this next or should we do that? You know, and there's that partnering, you know, between the coach and coachee, which I think makes intuition a really useful tool if we go back to tools and techniques, you know, in, using your intuition is, is a tool in that sense, as opposed to it being a judgment per se, but I suppose I started questioning what do I really mean by intuition versus judgment. So those those two terms, I think I sort of need to find a definition for myself about what those really are. I don't know. That's what's floating around in my my head. Has that triggered any more thoughts for you, Abudi? Yeah, I mean, I think this thing about self awareness is important for lots of reasons and one way I think it can help in this is for me when I go into a coaching space you know I want to know how I'm feeling and what's going on for me before I go into the space so that I can be curious about any changes that occur when I'm in the coaching space with the coach I might feel an emotion I might feel sad when they say something or tense or irritated and all of those things I think we should at least be curious about them you know they might be about us because of course the coachy is happening to me and I am I'm not a neutral mirror. But, you know, any change in myself might be a place to explore. I know, is this happening when you say that, for instance? Does that mean anything to you, to the coachy? So I think that self-awareness is really at the heart of this, both in terms of, you know, knowing who we are and where we're coming from, but also, you know, being able to monitor and be aware of any changes to our state once we're in the coaching session. I'm just thinking about this. Something else has come up for me with this. And I I think I said a moment ago that I don't really use the word intuition. And I think the the word that I prefer to use is around holding hypotheses around why something might be happening. And this is something that uh, Alison Hardingham, who's one of our visiting professors at Henley, talks about. And we often hypothesize over what might be happening or why we might be feeling a away and and that is a term that I use quite a lot in my own mind and I suppose I particularly identify with the word hypothesis because of my research background and any researcher knows that you hold a hypothesis lightly you have some evidence that it suggests why you might predict something to be happening but then you need to go and validate that by collecting more evidence so that might be that I have a hypothesis that there's something going on for the client in this direction and my intervention might be to ask a question about that and then something from the client might either start to confirm that hypothesis or perhaps not confirm it, in which case I can discount that and we might go in a different direction. And of course, coming back to the statement from our listener, there is some judgment in that because I've interpreted 
data or information from my client and that's led me to think of some particular hypotheses or my intuition is telling me something and that is going to be influenced by me as a coach, my experiences and the things that are really in my frame of reference and the type of things that I pay attention to. And as Abudi said, although we can try to park some of those and be as non-judgmental as possible, we we can never get rid of all of them, can we? So, so yeah, I think for me that there's just a slight language, and maybe that's me trying to just make something the same thing sound a bit more uh, scientific or yeah, less biased or judgmental by calling it a hypothesis. But I guess it's probably the same thing. It boils down to the same thing. I do like the term hypotheses, though. It does make me feel more comfortable about it all as well. I think what I'm hearing, though, is it's about not making assumptions that what we think and feel is true and that and what, what, whatever is happening for us, we need to check out with our, with our coaches to ensure that it's not a judgment that we're making and then holding to be fast and, and, and true. And I notice sometimes, and I do it myself, and also with all the the coaches that that we train, is often our judgments or our beliefs about what we think is really happening here. We we sort of load them and try and hide them in the questions that we're asking of our coaches. And when I start no start noticing myself do that, I think, oh, hold on a second, Sarah. Here we go. There's a there's a judgment appearing in here. What are you doing? And so it's it's being able to, again, come back to self-awareness, know that that's what's happening in that moment and try and stop yourself from doing that. I think there's something really valuable in what you said, Rebecca, about hypotheses and holding them lightly. I often think that the most important mood in coaching is lightness, both in terms of you know helping the coachee talk about difficult issues from a place of lightness, but also holding what we feel, sense, think, uh, judge intuit with lightness they're all if we hold them with lightness i think we keep away from trouble what a great place to end on that <laughs> well and Vudi, thank you what a great question hey so keep them coming in and we'll answer as many as we can in future episodes thank you for all your wonderful contributions so that brings us to the end of this episode of the Coaching at Henley podcast. Thank you so much to my colleagues, Sarah and Abudi for the fascinating discussion. And also thank you to our listener who shared their question with us. We hope you join us again next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Coaching at Henley podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find our podcast, including other Henley business podcasts from your usual podcast provider. To make sure you never miss an episode, don't forget to subscribe. We'd also love to hear from you. Tell us what you think about the podcast and please do send us any questions you'd like us to answer. You can email us via coachingpodcast at henley.ac.uk. Finally, you can connect with us on social media to make sure you stay up to date with any Coaching at Henley news. Find the link in the show notes. If you'd like to know more about Coaching at Henley Business School, check out our website.